on this week's Second Story podcast. We switch things up a little bit. Usually I play the role of podcast host, but today I'll be double dipping and playing your storyteller as well. My name's Ozzy Totten, and I'm a Second Story company member. This story, titled A Perfect Christmas, was performed on December 9th at Webster's Wine Bar in Lincoln Park. The theme of the evening was Epic Fail, Stories of Extraordinary Blunders. This story was curated by Deb Lewis, with performance direction by Lee Stark and a sound design by Nick Kawahara. Here we go. There's an old saying that I made up. It goes, you never know what you think you know. So it's the winter of my freshman year of high school, 2003, and freshman year is one of those times that proves this mantra, right? I spent my days terrified of being labeled. My preferred dress consisted of single-tone jersey cotton tees with no logo whatsoever. My lack of labels really defined me, you know? Somehow, my two younger brothers still looked up to me. Danny was just starting junior high and also refused to wear anything but plain single-tone tees without a logo. Joey was in the sixth grade and bursting at the seams with more energy than anybody knew what to do with and jumped at any opportunity to be just like me. Hey, Oz, can I borrow this book? Hey, Oz, look at this Pokemon card I just got. Hey, Oz, can I help you memorize your lines? Yeah, it's cute now. As the oldest, it fell to me every year to trek my brother's Christmas shopping to buy gifts for mom and dad. So we'd trudge through the snowbanks in St. Paul, Minnesota, arriving at the bookstore with a chill in our bones and a hot chocolate on our minds. This year, my middle brother, Danny, he makes a beeline towards the back of the bookstore to his favorite section, the space with the brightly colored carpeting and the pinewood bookshelves. And he plops himself down, cross-legged in the middle of the aisle, holding his favorite book, The Lion King. And I watch as he begins whispering to himself. Watching Danny read, it's, it's beautiful. Like watching an artist create, like Mark Rothko in his later days, slow and meticulous, but stunningly alive. See, Danny rarely talks. Crippling ear infections as a toddler left him with underdeveloped auditory skills. Engaging him in a conversation leads to many yes-no questions and plenty of stuttering. His Down syndrome does little to help matters, and his communication skills, well, they leave much to be desired. But when the words are in front of him, and he goes slow enough to wrap his lips around the vowels and the consonants, he just goes. He makes voices, he rocks himself back and forth with laughter, and he puts on a show for himself. And you can see the glimpse of a giggle and a smile, a smile that had slowly begun to dissipate since his entry into junior high, since his uh, entry into segregated classrooms and separation from his elementary school friends. So, like a responsible big brother, I leave Danny hanging out there while Joey and I browse through the rest of the bookstore. Hey, Oz, tell mom to get me this, okay, says Joey, holding up a copy of The Perks of Being a Wallflower, and I roll my eyes. He knows I own this book. He's seen me reading it a thousand times. So we pick up a hardcover Dan Brown novel for Dad, a Garrison Keillor novel for Mom, and we go back to pick up our brother from the middle of his aisle. And Danny's lost in his own world with lions and meerkats, and he doesn't see me or Joey walking up. He also doesn't see the little girl, maybe seven years old behind him, staring at him, mouth slightly open, hands uncomfortably grabbing her pink dress at the pockets. But I see that girl. I see her and my overprotective big brother Gene kicks in. See, people will sometimes stare at Danny for lots of reasons. I understand why people stare, but I don't like it. And sometimes I'll stare back. I'll turn my gaze as intensely on them as they have on Dan. And usually that makes someone uncomfortable enough to look away. 
But that's not what we have here with this little blonde girl, and her refusal to avert her gaze begins to make my cheeks pulse. So I walk right past my brother, and I walk right up to this little girl, and I kneel down, and in the nastiest teenage gay boy voice that I can manage... <laughs> I say, listen, honey, the only thing to stare at here is that little dress you're wearing. <laughs> and I straighten up and I walk back to my brother as her mom materializes from the next aisle with a Sally, honey, and the girl runs and grabs her mother's hand and grabs it tight, and I am sure that she's terrified of me, which is okay, because if the story that she tells her mother in the back seat of the minivan on the car ride home, strapped in tight to her pink car seat with the Disney princesses on the side, is of the mean teenage boy and not of the boy on the floor quietly reading, that's okay with me. So Joey touches my arm, bringing me back to the present with an Oz, we should go. And I blink as the blood rushes out of my neck with a, yeah, yeah, we should. Hey Dan, you ready? And Dan grabs my hand and pulls himself up onto his unsteady feet, and we walk home, our Sorel boots crunching through the snowbanks. Every Christmas season, ever since he was old enough to read, whenever Danny notices a new gift stationed underneath our Christmas tree, he'll pick it up and present it to you with an, Oz, book! <laughs> yeah, Dan, that's a gift. It's for me. What do you think it is? It's, it's, a, it's, 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 it's a surprise. And he takes the gift and shuffles it back to the tree, carefully placing it back exactly where he found it, as if to keep the illusion that it's been undisturbed. It was this sort of predictable comfort that I needed. That Christmas break, it was a chance, uh, it was a respite from the new world of high school, a chance for two weeks of sleeping in to rest and recharge because I have always been an overbooked person. That year I did three plays, joined the speech team, joined the debate team, played the tuba in concert band and marching band, and the trumpet in jazz band that met before school at 6.30 in the morning on Wednesdays, not to mention figuring out my sexuality during my downtime. <laughs> All of this was accomplished without a cell phone. So a couple of days before the holiday, we took a last-minute family shopping trip to Best Buy, and Mom escorted Danny and Joey back to the DVDs while Dad held me back next to the Nokia telephone display in the front. Okay, Oz, you've been asking for a cell phone, he sighed with the kids-these-days sigh that Dad sometimes get. So what do you think of this one? And you all know this phone. Half of you probably had it, right? It's that solid Nokia, like, like a small brick with the rounded button pad. And, and the green light behind the pixelated screen, it comes preloaded with snake. And you could throw this phone across the street and it wouldn't break. I know, I tried. <laughs> That'd be great, Dad, I say, breathing deeply to keep my heartbeat steady. Now you could call Mom or myself when you're done with play practice. It'll be good for you or something. And remember, this was 2003, right? Not many kids in my school had phones yet. I mean, there were the cool kids with their pink bejeweled razors, but most kids still used the beige corded phones on the wall to call their parents at the end of the day, dialing nine for an outside line. Okay, now go find your mom and brothers. Maybe you'll find it underneath the tree. So every, every family has a Christmas morning tradition. This is ours. Danny wakes us up far too early. We listened to a Chicago Ultimate Christmas collection while eating mom's homemade cinnamon rolls, and at about 11 a.m., us boys finally talked dad into dragging himself away from his newspaper and into the living room. Danny and Joey divide out the presents, and we go around in reverse age order, opening one gift at a time. So Joey opens my favorite book, which was good because I had let him borrow my copy of Perks of Being a Wallflower, and he had lost it, so now I get to steal his. Danny opens a beautiful pair of uh, fleece fleece sleep pants. And now it's me. And I pick up this perfectly cubic box, which I know 
contains my brand new phone and I can barely contain my smiles as I rip open the box and I throw the styrofoam in the giant garbage bag in the middle of our living room floor and I run to plug in my shiny silver Nokia brick. Well, mom opens cotton underwear and dad opens gold toe socks, such is my family, and it goes around again. And Joey picks up a perfectly cubic box, which looks a lot like my perfectly cubic box. And he ravenously rips it open to reveal a navy blue Nokia brick. And Joey, being all of 11, starts to scream. Oh my God, thank you, mom and dad and Santa. Thank you so, so, so much. And he's hugging his box and he's crying. Like I said, it's cute now. And we turn to Danny, who's now searching his pile of presents for that perfectly cubic box. And as he deconstructs his stack, it becomes clear that the box he's digging for isn't there. And so he gets up, and he walks over to the tree, and he sits down cross-legged, leaning forward, searching in any corner that he may have missed. Dan, buddy, come back here, open this present, says Dad, who holds up a gift that will contain a complete set of Thomas the Tank Engine stories for them to read in pajama pants before bed. But Danny slowly leans back, his face turned away from the rest of the family. And he sat like that for what felt like forever, the natural slump in his shoulders pronounced with a deep disappointment. Without a sound, he lurched himself up, pushing off his right arm for support, and marched downstairs to the basement television, turning up the volume as loud as he could make it go, and the four of us were left in the living room, this incomplete set, as we heard the chords of the circle of life screaming up the stairs and into our Christmas joy. Mom took in a sharp inhale, fighting back tears, but Dad was always better at the poker face. He turned to me. Well, Oz, looks like it's your turn. And we opened the rest of our presents, pretending everything's fine, and we took Danny's remaining gifts underneath the tree with the tension in the air that no family should have to endure on Christmas. Danny didn't smile throughout dinner. He ate quickly and ran off back to the basement, back to the safety and world of his movies. Later that night, I was preparing for bed, journaling in my new notebook, new slippers on my feet. When my mom knocks on my door and come in, I say, without looking up, and she walks behind me, she puts her hands on my shoulder and kisses the top of my head the way moms will do. So, bud, she says, was it a good Christmas? And my overprotective big brother Gene kicks in and I am hit with this wave of anger and I want to make my mother feel small, make her feel just as small as she and dad had made Danny feel. And I feel the blood rushing into my neck as I turn around to scream. But I see her face and I pull up short. Tears had carved canyons in her soft cheeks and her two-toned eyes begged to hear that at least one of her sons would go to sleep happy. There's a moment you realize your parents are people. They're not these infallible beings. They hurt, they cry, they make mistakes. The cell phones were and are expensive. Joey and I were involved in lots of activities. We needed to coordinate rides, keep our parents in the loop. Danny was never without an aide at school and he was so nonverbal that paying for a monthly plan, it made no sense. Was it the wrong choice? I still don't know. What I do know is that I woke up the next morning and I walked downstairs to pull my daily bowl of Count Chocula and drink my coffee, wake up for another big day of doing nothing, but nervously counting down the days until school came back. And Danny was already awake and sitting at the table, digging into his Eggo waffle with gusto. Morning, Dan. Oh, good morning, octopus. <laughs> Wait, Dan. Am I octopus now? Yep. <laughs> octopus. <laughs> and Christmas was yesterday, and it wasn't the best. 
But today he's laughing, assigning nicknames, and that smile is back, and it's bright as ever. And he sits across from me, his ego dripping thin microwave syrup all over the red and green tablecloth, and he giggles his way through the daily Garfield, and I can't help but smile. You never know what you think you know. That was, well, that was me. If my story gives you ideas for your own second story, we'd love to hear them. Second Story podcasts are brought to you in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the City Arts Program, the Chicago Community Foundation, and the Arts Works Fund. This Second Story podcast is brought to you by Amanda Delheimer Diamond, Bobby Badrisky, Deborah Lewis, Lee Stark, Nick Kawahara, Eric Hazen, Danielle Izel, the Second Story Publishing Committee, C.P. Chang, Sherry Pentamone, and myself. I'm Ozzie Totten, and this is Second Story. Thanks for listening.